This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by the Willow Tree Cafe right up the street from us in Central Florida, Franklin. A great German restaurant, family-owned tradition. It's the end of Oktoberfest, which ended kind of a couple weeks ago. So we're about a week late acknowledging the, the finish of one of the great festivals around the world, Oktoberfest. Franklin, I know you go to the Willow, the Willow Tree before. I've gone many times. What is your favorite thing? What is your favorite German food? I actually don't like German food at all. Um, well, that's kind of a buzzkill. When I was in Germany, I, I like, came out 15 pounds lighter afterwards. But I like a brat, man. Look, you can't go wrong with the brat. That, that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, I'm not a big fan of the fried food, and that's a lot of that. So a brat and a beer, and they're great people. Christina ran for office. She's politically involved, and it's great, great folks. It's good to see. Fingers crossed that we're hitting the crest of the flooding there. Most of Sanford is underwater. I think they're open. I think they're okay. But we're certainly, anytime we talk about Sanford these days, we're thinking about everyone up there and, and hoping uh, the water recedes soon and, and everything dries out. Well, Franklin, you know I'm a, I'm a German. I come from a German family. I grew up with a lot of a lot of brats, a lot of verse, a lot of good sausage, a lot of sauerbraten. They have a great great sauerkraut at the Willow Tree Cafe that is just marinated you know, roasted beef. It's in this sauce and it's just just cabbage and sauerkraut everywhere. It's just fantastic. So if you're ever in Sanford, Florida, please stop by the Willow Tree Cafe. Great live music, great German beers. Actual German family runs it. A lot of fun. And on that very tasty note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the SEC's new rule mandating publicly traded companies provide detailed disclosure about the financial impact of climate change on their business is in the home stretch. To help us figure it out, Aaron Frazier, Vice President of Public Policy for the National Restaurant Association, stops by the pod to let us know the latest and greatest and what brands need to prepare for. And last week, the Schultz Family Foundation, founded by you-know-who Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz in partnership with Harvard Business School and the Burning Glass Institute, launched the American Opportunity Index, a scorecard that ranks large companies by how well they create economic mobility for their workers. We'll discuss how the restaurant industry, the so-called industry of opportunity, fared on the index. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Cole. And Mr. Cole, you remember about six months ago, or maybe maybe three months ago, we had uh, Mr. Aaron Frazier, the vice president of public policy of the National Restaurant Association, come on the pod and talk to us about what the SEC was doing around climate information data and disclosures from publicly traded companies. Uh, that process continues to move along. And uh, Aaron has decided to rejoin us and give us an update. So let's go to that interview. Well, as our listeners will remember, we've had our friend Aaron Frazier from the National Restaurant Association join our podcast and illuminate us on a number of issues. And Aaron uh, has come back to talk about the SEC's pending climate rule 
Uh, we've talked with him about this before. Uh, I wanted to get an update on where we are in the process and what our friends at the National Restaurant Association are doing. So, Aaron, welcome back. Director of Public Policy for the National Restaurant Association, Mr. Aaron Frazier. Thanks for coming back to, on, on the pod. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. And uh, I, I think it's, it's been an interesting summer seeing a lot of things develop in this space. But uh, the SEC is definitely engaged, definitely interested in restaurant comments. So it's been really good to kind of relay a lot of the concerns that we have as restaurants, as people that are overseeing the, the food supply chain, uh, which has been kind of under siege over the last year or so, try to get the SEC into a better place on this. And, and, what, and, and, and just, you know, from the beginning, what is the SEC trying to accomplish here in a broader sense with this rule for all publicly traded companies? And then probably has some significant nuances for a restaurant. Uh, companies as well. So, what 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 is the at the end of the game? What, at the end of the day, what is the SEC trying to accomplish? So, climate change is important for for everyone, right? And I, I think that's something that we have to remember that this starts in a place of uh, President Biden campaigning on the trail, saying, "Hey, we need to have more information out there for the public, for investors, so that they know which companies or have climate goals, who are targeting conservation, who are reducing their carbon footprint." And candidly, I think if this was 10 years ago, I think restaurants would be in a tougher spot. But I think we as an industry have made really terrific strides to reduce our carbon footprint, to be mindful of the energy usage and the type of materials that we're using in our packaging and within our restaurants. So we've made great strides over the last 10 years. The problem is when President Biden had that go- has that goal – And then the Security and Exchanges Commission, the SEC, says, okay, we we need more information for investors on climate change issues, on conservation, on the environment. So we're going to set up some really complicated metrics so that every investor gets to see it. And we're going to see the entire value chain of a company, and we're going to put it into auditable financial information, and we're going to mandate it, and it's going to start really soon. So that's when a lot of industries, a lot of businesses say, hold on, we're, we're willing to share our environmental focus. We're, we're willing to share how we promote conservation within our brands. Uh, a lot of them are doing it already. They're furnishing these statements already. But we're putting in, we're now being asked to put in the entire value chain of where a cow comes from, the fertilizer that's growing the the grass that is eaten by the, the cow. And we're, ha- we're having to report on that type of emissions in our auditable financial documentation that we have to, that, that is literally, aud- again, auditable financial information. Um, so we are, as, as the National Restaurant Association, we've been gathering feedback from our members and learning more about this issue. And, in our, and then we filed comments in June to the SEC saying, hey, Restaurants are on the same page. We care about clean water, clean air. Uh, We want to make sure that uh, there's a healthy environment that can produce great food that we serve in our restaurants. But this is not that. (laughs) The the goals of this administration can be served really well without this type of rule and the, the way that they are proposing. So, Aaron, in your conversations with the administration, you know, is there is there. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm working on a on a very different issue, and we've been pleasantly surprised 
at the kind of open, it's an, it's an FDA related issue, but at the, at the openness of the agency to kind of learn some things. Are, are you having any luck with regulators in this space? They seem at all sympathetic with the, the, the points you're trying to make and, and, and bringing kind of that Main Street perspective to this, this process. Yes. And I, I think that's the most encouraging thing, Joe, is when we gather that real information from our members, when we can have those open discussions uh, with our members, that arms us with great feedback for the administration in terms of what's the workability of a standard and how does it need to shift. And then we take that message to anyone that will listen. Uh, we've taken a message to the, to the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA. And we talked about how the reporting requirement that goes back to the farmer, goes back to the rancher where, where we as restaurants get our food. It is, it is so detailed and it's very complex. And the average independent and smaller farmer can't really provide that information in a real-time, reliable way that a restaurant needs to put into their auditable financial documentation. So we're describing in our in very real terms how the restaurant is now incentivized, the restaurant, the franchisees, they're incentivized to shift all of their food and beverage sourcing into master distributors, maybe a publicly traded food distributor that also is subject to those same requirements. So we're describing how this restaurant will be shifting away from small independent farmers and ranches into a master distributor simply because of this requirement within their financial documentation. And that that's opened some eyes. And, and that's been great to hear feedback from the USDA that they're saying, yes, that is a very real problem that we're having. And that type of reporting, we're trying to change. We're trying to make that more furnished and publicly available rather than filed within the dollars and cents of it, a really important uh, SEC. So, Aaron, let me ask you a question. So, from a, a from a corporate perspective, this is is this like is any of this data being reported in any other forum? I mean, you know, does California have some standard they're copying that people are doing, or uh, is Europe? You know, who have operations in Europe or European countries? You know, doing this. Is there some model that the Biden administration is is, is um, following, or are they just kind of figuring out as they go along? No, that, that, that's a great question. You, Europe does have uh, standards that are very similar. And these are all under the greenhouse gas emissions protocols, the greenhouse gas protocols. And they are implemented in certain states like California, and they're also available in the European Union. The only, the only thing that we try to raise a, uh, a little bit of, a, of an issue with is the fact that we're we're now being asked to put them into auditable financial information via the SEC. And again, investors need to know about climate risk. They need to know about uh, different climate change issues within publicly traded companies. But inserting, you know, we're really shoehorning the climate data into the financial documentation. And let's be honest, in, in Europe, it's not the SEC. It's not their financial oversight overseers that are doing this. It's environmental folks. It's people that are passing laws. They're setting up programs in different ways. There's a little bit of a jurisdictional issue when you have the SEC, where publicly traded companies are filing the financial documentation, are also now overseeing climate change risk, climate change protocols, greenhouse gas emissions. And I, so, and, and I think the, 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 the subtext of your question is, Hey, could they do this? And the answer is probably probably could do 
a lot of the overall SEC reporting rules. But the implementation date and the complexity of how the SEC is doing it are really out of bounds. For Take a guess, Joe, when a big company would have to start reporting on this very complex climate data uh, if this rule is completely adopted. I'm going to say January 1, 2024. January 1, That's 2023. Incredible. So in a matter of weeks, they have to begin collecting this information. And then to your point, they have to start filing it in 2024. So we are weeks away from a bigger company needing to collect this information, but they don't know what information needs to be collected, how it needs to be collected, and what kind of liability they face if this rule actually is fully enforced. Um, so we get very concerned about those kind of timelines. And then secondly, there's also a matter of in the SEC's proposed rule, because this is such, such a complex, far-reaching standard that they're trying to create, the compliance costs for this go up almost 3x of what current compliance costs are. So this isn't something that you can just turn on a light switch and start doing in a more efficient way. This isn't tracking your uh, electricity usage within your company. This is going to be far-reaching and very challenging. So, so where are we in the process? You filed comments. The National Restaurant Association say filed comments. Uh, they were due earlier this summer. And what is the what is the agency doing with those comments right now? Where are we in the process? So the agency got over 8,000 comments on this. Uh, now, some of that is environmental groups have been waiting for this for, for years, right? And when the docket opened up to, to, to accept comments through the SEC's portal, uh, they did like a grassroots push and they got thousands of people with one paragraph saying, yes, we should do climate uh, reporting within SEC rules. So they're, they're unpacking a lot of things, but there's also comments from farmers, from small businesses, uh, from members of Congress that say, this is a rule that really seems like it should exist in a different agency, not the SEC. It seems like this is so far reaching. You might need, you might need to pass a law through Congress rather than just acting through a regulatory channel through uh a financial agency. Um, so they're currently they're going through about 8,000 comments and they want to try to make this, uh, we're hoping into a better rule. Uh, we don't expect anything by the midterm election. It's probably going to be after the midterm election, but it could even slip into the first quarter of 2023, which as we just discussed, Companies will have to start collecting this information in 2023, but the rule hasn't been issued yet. Um, so that offers a lot of challenges. In the meantime, we think there are really big improvements to the rule that are available. Um, and I also think, candidly, when congressional Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act in August of this year, that set a new standard for a lot of different climate goals that set a lot of new tax incentives for everything from electric vehicles to remodeling and, and construction uh, on, on a more green, renewable energy standards. So I think they got some of what they were after within the Inflation Reduction Act. So it might have a little bit more of a safe space for the agency to roll back some of the more uh, restrictive and punitive aspects of their so, final so Aaron, Sometimes on, on, on issues like this, maybe not so much at the regulatory level, uh, we ask, you know, brands to make comments, you know, on a grassroots perspective. We'll ask, you know, ask CEOs to pick up the phone and call senators, blah, blah, blah. On this particular issue, that's probably not the best. You know, we, 
Would you advise brands to be vocal in opposition to this and, and file their own comments and so forth? Or would this be one best suited to, to let their trade association partners kind of lead on? I think this is kind of trade association 101. I mean, I, I think this is the, the value proposition of a trade association is that you can cultivate comments, discussion, and concerns from your your members, bake them into your overall focus uh, on your comments, and then have the trade association file in the comments. I mean, this when you think of climate change, and, and, and our heart goes out to Florida, and Carol Dover at uh, Florida Restaurant Lodging Association has been doing a phenomenal job. Um, I mean, climate change is real for a lot of people, and it's very personal when your house is underwater uh, more than anything else. So we we know that climate change is a really big issue, especially for people uh, who are younger. So it's it gets complex when you weigh in on terms of a brand and saying, hey, we're, we support climate initiatives, but this rules goes way too far. Uh, that's difficult to say to your average customer, you know, and, and you don't always want to be on the side of saying, hey, this rule is way too, way too much. And mean, meantime, there are more powerful and dramatic weather events happening every year. Um, so I, th- I think this is something that trade associations need to be engaged on. This is something that we need our members feedback on. Uh, but I think that we are probably best suited to work with the federal agencies, to work with Congress, and to work with the, the public just on education on, on our side. From the and industry. obviously with the uh, SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, we're talking about publicly traded companies. Um, but are there any implications, you know, for, for privately held companies? I mean, you know, if, if RBI has to do this and Chick-fil-A doesn't because they're privately held, is there any is there anything that that is there any uh, obligation for a company like Chick-fil-A to be filing any type of you know paperwork like this because they're privately held? I think it's huge. I, I, I think there are huge ramifications for small businesses all over the place. This happens if you're a franchisee. And you are a small business, but maybe your franchisor is a publicly traded company. But you as a franchisee are now going to be held to the SEC standard because you're reporting all of your emissions back up to your uh, publicly traded uh, franchisor. So that's a big one. The other one is what we mentioned earlier about small businesses will not be the contracted partner in the same way for publicly traded companies. So if you're a small farmer, and you have 40 cows on your dairy farm and you provide milk to your local franchisee restaurant, that's going to change. That franchisee restaurant is now going to be incentivized to say, hey, if you can't if you can't provide your greenhouse gas emissions that meet the scope three standard of the SEC's final rule, then I can't work with you. And that small farmer might say, what? (laughs) What, 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 What is the scope three greenhouse gas emissions measurement? Uh, that's a real big challenge for those small businesses, for the small farmer and the small rancher that is not held to the SEC standard, but in a practical sense and in a business contracting sense, will definitely be held to that standard. Uh, so we think this has big implications for small businesses. Uh, we we happily lent our support to the House Small Business Committee when they wrote a letter to the SEC this summer saying we have major concerns about what this does to supply chain dynamics for all the small businesses that work with publicly traded companies. What was that the the, the full committee? Is that just the Republicans on that committee or on that letter to the SEC? 
that that was the uh, the House Republican uh, Small Business Committee. So it was it was the more minority side of that. But I will say, I mean, you, you hit on a key dynamic there. Um, when and when and if dynamics change on Capitol Hill in terms of who's in control, there's going to be a lot of oversight on this rule. There's going to be a lot of oversight on a lot of the regulatory uh, moves that the SEC has made. And we're working with them on saying, yeah, there are some really big concerns we have on on how they estimated, you know, why this needs to be filed within financial documentation when it's a climate change issue rather than a financial issue. Uh, So there will be a lot more oversight, a lot more discussion on this. It's not going away. Wow. Uh, Just amazing how this, you know, we've known this was coming and had had. You know, the, the president not been distracted with COVID for the first year and a half of his administration. This would have been one of these day one things because they're, 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 the administration is so focused on climate. So, uh, you know, we're certainly not fortunate to be able to deal with this. But, man, we bought it. We probably bought a year, year and a half uh, through the timeline with because, the, the, you know, they couldn't prioritize it. But, Aaron, um, I really appreciate you, 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 you getting us up to speed. You know, the last question, you know, so if you're. If you're, you know, if you're Blumen Brands, if you're Darden, you know, who are publicly traded, where do you find this expertise, you know, that that can make that that financial to climate math that the SEC is now requiring? Where, where does one go to get these people? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I, and I think it, it hits on the timeline of the implementation. How, how can we re- reliably collect this information for a public filing in 2024 and collect this information in 2023? When we don't know exactly what we're collecting yet, uh, but I, I think that the, the, the overall standards of the greenhouse gas protocol those are issued. Uh, there are regulatory bodies that operate this through the United Nations, uh, through the European Union, that have these types of standards pretty well documented. And even the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which you might think is the natural place for this kind of oversight and standards to be uh, monitored and overseen. They've issued a lot of information about how to collect scope three emissions and what the difference is between scope one, which is really your building, your your unit, you know, the cooking gas that you use. Scope two is kind of the, the overall ecosystem around your actual business, uh, your your travel, your employees. Uh, scope three goes all the way back to the farmers, the ranches, the soil. Um, so we're focusing on scope three just because it, it's outside of the control of the restaurant. But Again, the standards are the standards exist. It's all about implementation and making sure that you are able to collect that information. And you have supply chain partners uh, that know what it is. Well, you know, complicated, complicated space. Uh, I know you're a great resource for your members, especially your your larger chains in this particular issue. Uh, so, Aaron, we really appreciate you coming on Working Lunch again, Vice President of Public Policy, National Restaurant Association. Aaron Frazier, always the man with the facts and. Uh, Appreciate you sharing what you know with our audience. Great. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for all you do. Franklin, we've seen a lot of regulations, both at the state level and at the federal level. And usually there is a fairly decent time, you know, like on some of these recycling packaging things, you've got a five-year window before it takes effect. I mean, can you believe that the SEC the, the, the rule isn't even out yet any day, and companies by this coming January 1 are going to start gathering that data for next January 1, 2024 submission. Have you ever seen it, such an aggressive time frame for new regulation? 
hard to remember it, but you know, the other thing here is it's not like they're it's not like you're expanding upon existing data that's being collected and like they're just collecting it and formatting it in a different way. It's like a whole new world and a whole a whole new thing. And so I, I think that's the the challenging piece in it is, you know, overnight the, the, the time frame is distressing, but overnight a whole new data set that basically a lot of companies probably haven't been collecting, certainly not in in this great a detail throughout their supply chains, you know, snap of the fingers. Now I got to start figuring out how to, how to pull that together. That, that is troubling, problematic, you know, is going to be a big lift for a lot of companies and, and probably quite frankly, not going to get it right, but because it's going to be built from scratch in a, in a lot of cases overnight. Well, I appreciated uh, Aaron stopping by. That was nice. It's a, it's a complicated issue. I think companies are going to be, you know, just it's going to take them a while to understand the enormity of what they're being asked to um, to submit. And we'll see if the final rule takes into account any of the over 8,000 comments that Aaron cited uh, for this regulation. So appreciate Aaron stopping by. Our listeners will know that we spent a lot of time in the last year and a half talking about Starbucks, talking about unions, talking about Howard Schultz. And lo and behold, we're going to talk about Howard Schultz again today, but in an entirely new way. Uh, Mr. Coley, the Schultz Family Foundation, in cooperation with Harvard Business School and the Burning Glass Institute, released just yesterday the American Opportunity Index. Can you tell our audience what the American Opportunity Index is? So the American Opportunity Index is designed to capture what we've talked about for a long time, trying to capture, which is the value that companies give to employees to prepare themselves for their career path for the rest of their lives. So at this moment in time, any employee may be getting paid X and they maybe get Y in benefits. But what is hard to calculate is the Z value, which is how much skills are they accruing that's going to put them on a path, a quicker path, a steeper path, a faster path to to earn more. And so there's a lot of skills gathering. We've always asserted that in the entry-level employer space, particularly for you know, workers that may not have college degrees or advanced degrees, that there's an opportunity to gather a bunch of skills that will help them advance more quickly through the workforce and, and you know, up the compensation ladder. And that that is often goes unaccounted for when taking into consideration kind of company's value, right? The company's value that they, they deliver for their, their workers. So Howard Schultz has attempted here in conjunction with some very smart people to put a number on that, to put a figure on that, to grade that, to grade companies by that, which companies are the best and the brightest at providing advancement opportunities for the workers. And here's the key part, I think, not only within the company, but with outside the company. So giving them these kind of skills and preparing them so 10, 20 years down the road, they're in a better place than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, and you and I looked at this years and years ago, probably more than 10 years ago. We, we were making the analogy that, you know, uh, uh, a job that's at 10 bucks an hour, you know, kind of washing windows outside a building is 
maybe somewhat different from a job that's 10 bucks an hour at a Walmart or Home Depot where there's this, all this infrastructure of training, all this opportunity for advancement, all this you know, looking for people to get into management ranks. And is that $10 job at Walmart embedded, that, that, that wage embedded with so much more opportunity and future upward mobility than the window washing job. And so we, we were trying to put a numerical value on opportunity. He has, you know, done much the same thing, kind of coming at it from another end, putting a numerical value on the company's commitment to those workers. And it's going to be an annual report guard about how, how companies are developing workers and developing their workforce and what kind of opportunity. Pretty interesting. Is the timing have anything to do with trying to drive a new conversation outside of unions? Let me, let me put a pin in that. I, I want to, that was very well said, and I want to just drive that point home, Joe. Here here are the, the uh, five criterion that they, that they really judge these companies on. Career launch pad, career stability, career growth, growing talent, and advancement without a degree. And so, you know, the way that they kind of lay this report out, and you should go visit it online, it's AmericanOpportunityIndex.org. You can see that they'll lay these rings kind of over top one another for brands. So AT&T got the highest marks. And so it kind of earned high scores, high grades in each of those five categories. And so different companies earn different scores in different categories. I was kind of surprised that the, the retail sector, in terms of the entry-level employer space, the retail sector did fairly well. Like AutoZone was up there as, you know, one. And there was a number of retail brands um, that did well and a number of franchised retail brands that that performed well. The restaurant industry did not, was not graded that, that you know, they took the 250 largest companies. And so McDonald's and Starbucks were in there. I think they both had one ring. Don't quote me on that. You have to go back and look. Um, so they had some, some strong parts. And I think we know McDonald's and Hamburger University is, is a great program that they're very good at kind of graduating people up internally. You know, when we're doing the IRAP apprenticeship programs within the industry, McDonald's was, their curriculum was kind of already there, you know? So I think it's a challenge we need to get better at this. So the way to get better at this is to start grading it, right? So if you start grading this stuff, whether you're using the American Opportunity Index or you know something else, right? Being able to grade this and score against it is critical if companies want to get better in this space. And so I'm not saying the American Opportunity Index is the end-all be-all. It's cool. It's neat. It's a good tool. It's out there. It may end up being the end-all be-all. But I love what they're doing here. Companies should be thinking about doing this internally themselves. And we honestly, as an industry, should be thinking about ways to peg ourselves against one another. Black box intelligence does this kind of thing to get better at this because it's only going to make us as an industry better. It's only going to make companies better. So I'm going to stop talking now, Joe, before we go to the kind of unionization piece. Is there anything else here before we push off that, that you know, you want to hit yeah. out there? I think this is Cool. I'm excited. I think it's very cool. You know, if, if it's if it's you know if it's if it's sound and Harvard Business School wouldn't be putting his name on it if it wasn't sound. But it's it's interesting. You know, if it were to take off, you know, the Waffle House Index. You know, one person said it five years ago. Now it's 
in the standard part of the national conversation. If this were in the national conversation five years from now, this index, you know, we talk a lot in this industry about opportunity. Our talking points are about opportunity. We're an industry of opportunity. According to that scorecard, not so much. Doesn't does this does this having this type of metric potentially come back and be used against us that we're not living up to the, the talking points? It very well could. I I I think it. I don't know. I don't. I don't read it the same way. I don't know that it's because there were a lot of there were a lot of brands that I would have expected to um, uh, to do better that that did not. You know, so we just dig into the methodology here. But like, you know, like there's a lot of brands that got zeros, and it's, it's you know Allstate, AIG, Berkshire Hathaway, Blackstone. But those, you know, those organizations and industries aren't touting themselves as industries of opportunity. We are. And we only had two 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 brands in the top two hundred and fifty. I mean, I, you know, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to to scold anybody. I'm just kind of saying, man, this could our own our own this own thing could come back and, and, and bite us, It'd be used against us. I don't disagree with that point. I do think there's other brands in here that tout themselves in the same way. Lennar, Manpower's in here. You know, these are entry level employers. Home Depot's in here with zeroed out scores, right? So like, um. You, you know, there are brands in here that did not register, that did not score. I, and I, I think that's OK. I mean, like, you know, we're all, we've got to fail forward in, in the space. The first time this metric's been done. Right. So, like, you know, but what, what, what surprised me more, I think, were the and I, I, I guess I'm getting glasses half full in this um, is the brands that um, perform super well and how we potentially could be close to those. AutoZone was one that jumped out really at me, which was, you know, super high scores. AT&T, as we said, was the highest. Southwest Airlines. Costco was up in there as well. Anyway, I, 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 I do think that bringing... I'm with you, Joe. We got to be able to walk the walk if we want to talk the talk. And so if we're going to be an industry of opportunity... We, we darn, and we're going to use that talking point aggressively and publicly, particularly in the context of labor conversations. We better make sure that we're walking the walk. And that's for each individual brand, but we as an industry get better as, as all the brands get better. So I know there's a concerted effort inside most major brands to get better in this space. And now we have at least one marker out there that's, you know, we'll, we'll see how long it lives for and, and how much it impacts the dialogue, but at least one marker out there to kind of bounce grade ourselves against. To your point, probably could have done better this go around, but, um, you know, we'll see what the future holds. Yes, I think it's super interesting. And again, you know, kudos, kudos to them for going down this road. You know, it, it, it talks about, you know, it, it, I'm almost, almost going to contradict myself. It almost validates what we've been saying that embedded in jobs are opportunity. No matter what the wage scale, what the, where it is, there's an unbelievable opportunity embedded in most jobs, and and so that does ring true in our industry as well. You know, congratulations to Howard Schultz for getting this off the ground. And to your point, we'll see whether it's a kind of a one and done, or whether it's going to be an annual thing, and then you get media around it, and, and so forth and so on. So interesting, interesting topic. I'm glad we uh, took some time to talk about it. So back to your 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 question, we put a pin in Joe in terms of the timing and the in the union effort. So. 
according to the way this is laid out, this started over a year ago. I'd have to go back and look at my calendar, but I think that that predated the um, the organizing effort at Starbucks, um, maybe by hair. Um, the Schultz Family Foundation was founded in 1996, and I suspect Howard Schultz and the foundation have probably been looking at this, you know, for for some before that. I'm going to answer your question this way. Everyone needs to go check out the Washington Post podcast. I'd actually never listened to it before this morning. It's the Post Reports, and Friday today's podcast is a podcast on Howard Schultz and essentially a Washington Post reporter embedded with him for four months, went around the country with him on this listening tour in the middle of the unionization effort. And I think what comes out of that that podcast, I think is very fair uh, and, and, and kind of balanced in the way it, it looks at Howard Schultz and it looks at Starbucks. What you get from that podcast is, I think, what you get from this Opportunity Index. It's Howard Schultz's vision of what companies and what Starbucks can be for its employees, how it can be an agent of, of positive change for its employees. I, I, it comes out in that podcast that, that and I, I think it rings true, that uh, he believes that in his heart of hearts, and he believes that that is what Starbucks is doing. And it comes out in the podcast that he is just dismayed and can't understand or connect, you know, this unionization effort to that, that he kind of views it as like separate and apart outsiders coming in and instigating that um, Starbucks is great and always has been great and provides this opportunity for his employees and uh, that sort of thing. So in addition to checking out the opportunity index, go check out, listen to this, this Washington Post podcast. It's fascinating. Uh, and it's really good. And I think it's pretty balanced and it shows kind of the struggle that he and the Starbucks system is going through, through this, this unionization effort. It's time for legislative scorecard. We're going around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, we'll start off this week with paid leave, uh, Washington state getting a little, maybe a little too far out over at skis in their state, their new state paid leave program. This is super interesting because right out of the gates, when states were standing up their paid leave programs, and I believe Washington was one of them, you know, these things were coming back with huge budget surpluses. And, and so, you know, these facts and figures that were being pushed out, scaring states and localities from standing up paid family leave programs because of these enormous costs, Everyone started going, oh, you know, we're not seeing that. You know, in, in the first states that went down the path of these programs, we weren't seeing workers really utilizing these paid family leave programs. And there was all this extra surplus cash. I don't know what's happened in Washington state. I don't know how much of this is related to the pandemic. I don't know how much is the education curve of workers realizing that this benefit is there and can be taken advantage of. But the program's underwater. Um, it's in deficit. And so the program administrator is basically having to bump up the deductions from workers' wages to finance the program. So the report recommends what they're looking at is raising uh, the rate to 0.79 from 0.6%. You know, that that's 
percentage-wise, that's a pretty big jump up. I mean, it's still a relatively small amount, but percentage-wise, that's a that's a big jump up. So, you know, we'll we'll see where this lands. But the bottom line is the fund is underwater, and they're going to have to raise the amount they take out of workers' paychecks as a result of that. So we're going to have to watch how this plays out in Washington. But I do think these types of developments are going to impact these conversations in other parts of the country. Switching to labor policy, uh, the Labor Department, we teased this out on the last two podcasts, but the Labor Department finally dropped their proposed rule on independent contractors. Franklin, it got a ton, a ton of media coverage all over the country. Uh, this week. What are your thoughts on that space? Yeah, I mean, this was n- not unexpected, but is going to freak the employer community out, and rightly so. So um, it's and it's unclear, you know, how and where this is going to be applied and what it's going to look like. And that's all going to be sorted out <clears throat> in kind of the coming coming months, potentially coming years. So look, it, it, it mimics kind of the Obama era uh, rule that was scuttled by the Trump administration. It's based in the economic realities test. It's based in the totality of circumstances test. The old kind of, you know, standard in the traditional ABC standard is is out, right? Traditional ABC standards what the employer community is wanted. But this old sort of direct control standard is gone. And now we have this. It's a little fuzzier, but it, 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 it's, it's going to give the Labor Department and enforcement agents some flexibility to look at the, quote unquote, totality of circumstances, you know, the economic reality test. So they're going to probably go after industries here um, that have otherwise been considered separate business units and, and independent contractors. And it's going to increase the liability exposure for a number of employers, certainly in ride share, but potentially construction industry and other industries that rely heavily on independent or subcontractors. Frank, I'm down the street at the National Labor Relations Board, you know, Starbucks has been pushing back and filing complaints that the NLRB has been a little heavy handed in their uh, assistance to the, the unions. And the Inspector General of the National Labor Relations Board announced this week that eh, maybe there's maybe there's some from some fire with that smoke and, and, and has launched an investigation. What do you think? This may be one of the bigger wins for Starbucks. I remember you know, they they sued the NLRB essentially. You know, they went after the NLRB aggressively on a couple of things. And this was primarily it that like, you know, mail in ballots started during COVID as part of the pandemic. And we shouldn't have mail in ballots anymore. We should be we should be returned to normal, so to speak. And part of their claim was that the balloting process was not being administered evenly in that, you know, some people were voting in person, some were dropping off their absentee ballots in person, some were mailing them in and and that they were kind of uh, allowing greater flexibility for union members. That was the accusation, at least. So this is, you know, Starbucks called for this and now they've got the IG looking into it. Um, it'll be interesting to where this shakes out. But, uh, you know, there's at least enough there that the IG wants to investigate it. So that's not nothing. And it'll be interesting to see if this leads to any policy changes within the NLRB. I can't believe that the NLRB uh, staff is, you know, I'm sure it's substantial, but relative to the onslaught of election petitions in the last year, they've just got to be overwhelmed at the NLRB. 
latest and greatest, Franklin, Amazon, Southern California. What do you think? This is a big test. And this is styling itself as the Amazon labor union. So, you know, the kind of independent labor union that organized at JFK 8. This is a big test of that union. And, and you know, one organized warehouse is not going to be enough to push really Amazon to the table. There, there's got to be more going on across the system here. And this will be a big kind of proving ground for whether or not that was a, a just one off or if this is what, what was done to JFK can be done to other warehouses around the country. And um, your your fellow North Carolinians are finally getting getting called to the dance floor. Lowe's having its first ever unionization election. As I remember, uh, one of their stores in New Orleans has filed for a union election. They have Lowe's Workers United. I'm seeing a similar theme here. Uh, the petition has been filed. It's unclear, and the union organizers wouldn't state in the press coverage how many signatures they have, but it's above the required, you know, 30% or whatever. So, you know, we've got the Home Depot election upcoming now. We've got a Lowe's election. So starting to see some activity in, in the big box stores. So we'll be, uh, we'll be watching that down in New Orleans. And Franklin, one last uh, issue on Starbucks, going back to them. They got a, uh, they had a good week in some ways at the NLRB. They, they got wrapped across the knuckles on a couple of cases. And uh, two different judges, uh, one in Michigan and one covering the Kansas, Missouri area, said that you've got to you illegally fired some folks for, for union activities. You got to hire them back. Yeah. So we had that. We had kind of like the flood of labor of union petitions come in and then there was a delay. And then we had a flood of unfair labor practices. We're now like getting into the flood of unfair labor practices. So we're going to have a flood of decisions and the conduct of the company here in the next couple months and that the drip drip turned into the, 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 the first signs of a flood kind of this week, we're seeing all kinds of settlements. They're all a little bit different, but yes, uh, reinstatement, reimbursement, postings in restaurants is these are kind of the settlements we're, we're starting to see. One kind of blockbuster thing that hit the headlines this week that's a little bit different that we haven't seen before is that a manager, a former manager, testified that the company provided him a list of union sympathetic workers in his in his location and told him to target them for enforcement action. So this was this was testimony provided by this manager. Um, So, you know. I'm, I'm sure there's other sides of the story there, but that is, uh, if that were true, that that would be unlawful. You know, you can't target union empl- employees or union sympathizers. That's that's not lawful. So um, that's that's kind of a big deal. And depending on how that flushes out in that case, that could go to the overall kind of conduct of the company here, right? Was this an isolated incident or was this pro forma? Um, so that little piece will be interesting to see and, and could have broader um, ramifications. The union at this point is saying that over 80 workers have been unlawfully fired. And so we got weeks, months, maybe even years of kind of hearing the, the outcome of all these cases. And lastly, Franklin, an issue we have not talked about and seems like a long time, mandated scheduling uh, has been kind of a dormant issue, but uh, got got a new unveiling at a roundtable with the Labor Department last week. I know. I uh, 
man, I was getting, I was okay not having a scheduling bucket in top items for, for so long. It, you know, it's gone dormant on the, on the legislative regulatory front, but it's been front and center in a lot of these organizing campaigns. And so it was probably only a matter of time before it came back to us in the, on the regulatory front. And then the, uh, the most pro union president in uh, modern history, as uh, he is, is like to be called by by union labor leaders, has had his labor secretary dive into this and is looking at, we've seen this in other areas where, you know, Walsh, Marty Walsh starts looking at something and there's something else happens and something else happens. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got some legislation or some regulation coming down the pike. So this round table, they're looking at how two weeks advance notice and mandatory periods between work shifts, you know, so no clopenings, you know, what, why and how we can, we can see more of that in the workplace. Um, I would note that it was uh, Rep. DeLaro, who's, you know, it was Secretary Walsh, and then it was your, uh, your soulmate there, Michael Astoria, was the, was a third person participating in the roundtable, Mr. Kefoffer. And Michael has been a listener on this podcast and a guest on this podcast, uh, so it was interesting to see his name pop up. Yeah, he's, he's always had a, had a, a, a worldview that was a little uh, not mainstream in the restaurant industry. He's always been a little more uh, out front on the wage and benefit and health and healthcare issues and so forth. And so it, it surprised me, but then again, it didn't surprise me to see Michael. But he's a very thoughtful, uh, very thoughtful guy, and you know um, he believes passionately in in what he believes. So you know, good to have restaurant well, tours. You know, sitting next to next to cabinet secretaries is never a bad thing. And on this issue for. Many many years we have been very outspoken too that um, this is a dumb one that that you know this is an unforced era that yeah. the the retailers kind of got the ball rolling here and the own call just own call scheduling that we're just asking for it, that that was bad form probably never should have been done in in the way it was and set up in the way it was and then the way that it was set up led to kind of abuse in any way. Bottom line is there were some bad practices. There's a question as to how bad some of the current practices are, but, you know, as a brand, don't allow yourself to become a target because you are messing up in this space. The The flip side of the question too is, you know, the challenge here is that government intervention here is, is tough to do because the way the, the, it's just tough to do, but um, I see you kind of hyping to jump in there as well. So I'll let you. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I wasn't hyping to jump in. It's just I think you said it. It was unforced error. You know, if we if we had just, you know, come to the table and agreed on the the, the, the two week thing and maybe another thing or two, we would have been past this issue long ago. Uh, but because of our own intransigence as an industry, then it became much worse. The other side started piling on more over fines for this and fines for not enough time between shifts and fines for any, you know, we made it, we made ourselves our own worst enemy on that particular issue of all the business model issues we've got to fight out there. I just can't believe we, you know, we took telling somebody when they're going to work, <laughs> giving somebody some head, heads up on when they're going to work was the smartest use <laughs> of political capital that we could have done, but uh, it is what it is. Um, and, you know, it was just interesting to see uh, that issue pop up kind of out of nowhere and then have a, you know, 
fairly well-known restaurant CEO on stage as well. So uh, interesting week. Uh, That's it for the scorecard. We'll have one for you next week. Well, Mr. Coley, another week, another pod. We've been looking forward to the election coming up here in uh, early November, but the week following the election is a pretty important restaurant industry powwow. The Council of State Restaurant Associations will be meeting in Salt Lake City. And as the heads of the state restaurant associations kind of be putting pulling together their legislative agendas for 2023, you and I are frequent attendees at these events. Um, are you looking forward to the CSRE conference this year? I am. Just a heads up, CSRA team, they have great hotels, convention space in the Orlando area. So, you what know, bring her, bring, her, bring her over yonder if you, if you could. Salt Lake City is a long way away. But, yeah, looking forward to it. Obviously, it's going to be a big 2023. It's going to be interesting dynamics because, man, there's, there's a lot of states on Election Day that could be blue trifectas or maybe be divided government. We're probably going to have some red trifectas broken up. We're, we may have some blue trifectas broken up. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. You know, I I can't, it's hard to remember. I feel like there's a lot in play at the state, like a lot more than usual in play at the state level right now, this election cycle, partly because of redistricting, partly because of these weird national dynamics, but there's, there's these state level issues. There's these weird national cross currents. So Anyway, it'll be fun to go into the CSRA conference a week after Election Day when we have probably in a handful of states like completely different political dynamics in place. So I look forward to, to hearing from the folks from those states, their their hot takes on things. Yeah, it's a good opportunity for our friends in the chain community to get, you know, kind of get in the mix and mingle with their state restaurant association execs and swap best practices and ideas and make sure, you know, people's uh, priorities are being recognized in our agendas going for 2023. So good event. Hope people take part. And uh, on that happy note, we will talk to you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.